The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Zechariah prophesying and speaking at this point about what the Lord will do. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off all the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. This is the word of God. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the spirit of God who enables us and helps us to understand and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This portion of the prophecy of Zechariah, which we are going through in this Advent series, This portion describes a future day, a day of the Lord, or on that day, which has multiple fulfillments in history, but ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his first and second advent, a day when God will battle against all nations on behalf of his people, and the great victory Jesus Christ accomplished in his first coming and will culminate in his second coming, that victory over sin and death and hell on behalf of his, of his people that will, we know, will be brought to completion when he comes in power and glory to judge the world and to finally resurrect and transform his people in glorified bodies and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus and his great victory is the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies and pictures we have in Zechariah. And I want us to see this evening how this text particularly applies to Jesus' triumph over the problem of sin, his triumph over sin. 
The first point we see tonight is Jesus came to conquer sin so that his people truly repent. Jesus came to conquer sin so his people truly repent. Verse 10, we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. You may know the translation, and supplication. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And he goes on to describe that mourning. This, we know, is a famous Bible verse. It's quoted in the New Testament Twice, once in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 37, where the apostle is describing Jesus' death on the cross and the the soldier's piercing of Jesus' side to see if he was really dead. And this verse is quoted as being fulfilled in the death of Christ. And then there's that quote from Revelation 1-7, which also alludes to this. And we find there that as Jesus' second coming is being described, we're told, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. The idea is that piercing God is a clear picture of sin and rebellion against God. And so, what we're told in Zechariah 12, verse 10, is to have this spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, the spirit of grace and true supplication to be poured out on a people so that there is true mourning, true repentance over sin and rebellion that would cause one to pierce God. That is a great gift of grace from God to have such true repentance Of course, there is also an empty mourning which Revelation 1-7 describes when it is too late, when the last trumpet has already sounded and the glorious Christ returns, no wonder that all the tribes of the earth shall wail, anyone who is at that point apart from faith in Christ. But what we see described in Zechariah 12-10 is an amazing result of the victory, the true victory of the Christ, the Messiah. Because of Jesus' triumph, because of Jesus' first coming in humility and lowliness to bear our sins and to rise from the dead for our justification, because of that, sinners who are opposed and rebellious to the living God by the work of the Spirit of God and God's amazing grace they show this true repentance and a right mourning over sin. It's interesting the depth and the breadth of this mourning described here in Zechariah. We read that this mourning is as one mourns for an only child. Think of what it is for parents to lose an only child. They say that in China, because of the one-child policy, there's a principle called the 4-2-1 principle, which someone in China advanced in the 70s when this policy was at first instituted. And the idea is four grandparents, two parents, one child. Think of how it all hinges on how that child does and how your life focuses on that one child. The idea is the same here. In that culture of ancient Israel, to have an only child die, think of the mourning there would be. Or it's like the mourning 
for a firstborn, we're told. As one weeps over a firstborn, likewise, maybe not as severe, but still, there was so much hope and energy put into the firstborn. What if the firstborn dies? Or on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. There's question about the meaning of this verse. It may be referring to a pagan god, and so is using grief over this pagan ritual to be an example of right mourning. Or it may be that Hadad Rimon means son of Ammon, and is talking about the death of King Josiah, which the Bible recounts on the plains of Megiddo in battle there. A good king, a much well-loved king. And when you read that account, you think, oh, why did King Josiah have to die there? He was a good king. Think of the mourning that went up in Israel. I think of the mourning when Abraham Lincoln's funeral train crossed the eastern portions of the United States on the way to Illinois. And it came through many of the cities in the eastern part of the United States. And people gathered by the thousands to mourn and to pay their respects. And so the mourning was very deep. It was also very wide. It talks about the families mourning, the families of the house of David and Nathan and Levi and Shimei. Probably this is referring to various royal and noble households and priestly households. And because of the ancient custom, and it was inappropriate for women and men to mourn at the same time because of the nature of mourning, it mentions that their wives mourned as well. And, and so all the families, even those that were left, all of them mourned. This point then is underlined in Zechariah 12 that the fulfillment of this spirit of grace and supplication, this mourning being poured out on the people of God shows us that Jesus came to bring his people to true repentance And we would say that's a vital part of saving faith. What does it mean to come to Jesus Christ in conversion? What does it mean to receive salvation and eternal life? Maybe some of you young folks are struggling that. You've been raised in the church and you hear this talk all the time about faith. What does it mean? It means to believe in Jesus Christ, who he is. Receive him in humble submission to him. And that involves repentance saying, oh, Lord, I want to forsake and turn away from my sin. I can only do it as you give grace. And so it's a turning from our sin to the living God, to Jesus Christ. To say to the Lord in another sense, I was one in spirit with those who pierced you. I wasn't actually there. I didn't actually do it. But My rebellion may not have been acted out in such an extreme form. Maybe it was mostly a matter of living my life without any real regard for the true God. Just ignoring God is a deep and abiding form of rebellion against God. But as Jesus the Messiah pours out on anyone, on any sinner, a spirit of grace and supplication. And as the gospel is preached, God gives true repentance by his grace. 
And then the rest of the Christian life is living by daily trust in Jesus Christ and daily repenting from our sins and seeking for God to revive us, to turn us to himself. Maybe some of you have heard about the famous Fulton Street Revival of 1857. Talk about the Lord pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication. It was a difficult time for the United States financially. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of uncertainty because of the slavery issue at that time. And on September 23, 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere climbed the stairs to the third floor of a church on Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. He had produced a flyer that asked fellow New Yorkers to stop and call upon God for a few minutes each week at the church. So he showed up and he entered the deserted lecture room. And he began to pray. This was at noon. A half hour later, another man joined him. And by one o'clock, there were six men praying together with him. The next meeting, there were 10. Then there were 40. Then there were 100. And it snowballed. At the peak of the revival, there were 50,000 New Yorkers praying in daily locations around the city. Businesses closed during the noon hour to accommodate prayer. Stores, fire departments, music halls, and theaters became venues for prayer. And the meetings spread across the state and the nation, and probably close to a million people were converted to Christ. That was the time that Dwight Moody was attending meetings such as this, and he recruited his 17 boys from the street to begin his first Sunday school class. It was the time that... Horace Underwood became a missionary to Korea, a country that now contains something like 30 million Christians. Many other results of that Fulton Street revival. But that revival was certainly characterized by the spirit of repentance as God pours out his grace on his people again. Jesus came to conquer sin by giving his people true repentance. Secondly, Jesus came to conquer sin so that his people experience truly the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of their lives. Chapter 13 tells it this way, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That is what the angel said. He came to save us from the penalty of our sins and from the power of our sins. And this is the true experience of every believer. We are cleansed from our sins. And there's this image that's employed in Zechariah of a fountain opened. You and I are used to having pretty clean clothes. We have washers and dryers, and we have amazing detergents You can read the advertisements about the best ones. When Patty and I were first married, we didn't have our own washer and dryer for six years. 
And uh, that's because we live in various apartment complexes, and we had to use the apartment complex laundromat. So we'd have to take the clothes down or out or around or somewhere and uh, bring them home after we were done. And so after those first six years, I remember, we still remember getting our first washer and dryer and talk about this sense of ecstasy. We were just so excited about that. Even to this day, we sometimes say to each other, half-jokingly, isn't it great to have a washer and dryer? It's great. But think of that ancient civilization, how you did your wash. You carried water from the well, I guess, or you went down to some local stream that probably wasn't that clean and kind of, you know, hit them against the rocks and so forth. You didn't get the things all that clean. That's why the Old Testament images of, of, of clothes washed whiter than snow. They would be amazed at what our laundry, what our washing machine does with our white sheets. They're really very good. And so there's this imagery of a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that stands for the people of God. Anyone who comes to Jesus Christ through faith, it brings to mind that famous hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stain. And the amazing thing about Jesus' cleansing is that it, it goes to the deepest recesses of our hearts. Jesus fully cleanses us of sin, and he fully transforms us from sin. We are new creations in Christ, and one day when we see him, that transformation will be complete. It's true. We don't see the complete transformation now. We don't see it yet, but Scripture assures us it will come. And even now, we know that we are being transformed from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of God. We must believe that. It is the Word of God. Do you know that faith in Jesus Christ gives an assurance that we are once for all forgiven and cleansed from our sins. And that radical cleansing also begins changing everything about how you and I live our lives. We are not the same. We are being changed by the power of Jesus Christ. There's been a radical break from sin. We died to sin in Christ. We've been raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And so we're commanded, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey it in its lusts. And now more and more, we want to live for Jesus Christ. Yes, we stumble and fall, but our God is at work. There was an article in a recent World magazine that Andre So who's a columnist for World, talks about the fact that her father-in-law moved in with them two weeks before this article came out. And she said to her husband at the end of the first two weeks, I have been kind and tender-hearted toward your father for two weeks now. But what happens when he starts to see the real me? Interesting. And her article is about who is the real me? She says, in one sense, all of us tend to think the real me is uh, the, the rude, thoughtless person. 
And she says, it feels that way because we know the old man better. We have lived with him for a long time. We're used to the rude and thoughtless person we were. We know the way he thinks, his habits, his strategy. So he seems to make a better claim of being the real me. But the whole thrust of her article is that is not scriptural. Yes, we wage war against the old man, but he's an imposter, she says. And the real me is the new creation in Jesus Christ. I like the way she, one of the concluding sentences, she says, but the truth is, I am not my dark side. It is not fraudulent to be slow to speak and gentle of demeanor, to consciously put on these godly behaviors. It is actually a biblical command. Put on the new self. Obedience is not hypocrisy. It's a good statement of this cleansing and transformation that Jesus Christ brings. He came to save his people from their sins thoroughly, to cleanse us from the penalty of sin and to break the power of sin in our lives. And finally, we know we will see him face to face and we shall be like him. And then finally, Jesus came to conquer sin so that his people truly turn from their idols Verse 2, and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off all the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. He's talking about false prophets there. He's saying there's going to be a radical change. Zechariah was preaching during what we would call the restoration after the nation had been in exile. And we know that the nation had been sent into exile for their idolatry, which always plagued them again and again and again. And now the restoration has occurred. And interestingly, historically, never again did the nation succumb to the depths of at least outward pagan idolatry that it had been plagued with for so many generations. It was much less blatant idolatry. But it would be a big mistake to think that all idolatry was cured. Think of the religious establishment at the time of Christ. We'd we'd say, well, there wasn't blatant idolatry. Far from it. Think of the Pharisees. Think of the religious leaders of the time. Think of how Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs. They wouldn't have dared to pray to a pagan idol, but they were seeped in idolatry, the idolatry of the heart. But the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ changes his people from within. So one of the greatest and most prominent fruits of the Lord changing our hearts and cleansing us from sin is that now we less and less worship the idols of this world. We more and more worship the true God. Jesus came so that the nations would worship the true God. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And as the gospel goes out to the nations of the world, Jesus is claiming more and more sinners to be true worshipers, to turn from this world's idols. There's no doubt about it. The Bible tells us clearly that every person on this earth is a worshiper. 
everyone in this room is going to be worshiping every day this week. You cannot live your life without worshiping, without loving things more than other things, without valuing things more than other things. Whether those things are materialism or pleasures or comforts or order or control of other people in your life, all those lists of the typical idolatries that are still very much alive in our day and age. The question is, what, or we might say, whom are you going to worship this week? If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've been transformed by His grace more and more, your goal is to worship Him alone, whatever comes your way this week. And when you come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, God fundamentally transforms your worship. And then that's being worked out for the rest of your life. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Thanks be to God. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Father, our hearts rejoice as we hear the beautiful music describe and proclaim and command all nations to look and behold what a wonder that Jesus Christ is come. Joy to the world. We have that joy. We experience that joy. We thank you that when we are assembled together like this, it's a contagious thing. And thank you for the encouragement of the saints and how we're edified and built up as we call one another to remember and to proclaim and to trust the living God. And we pray that you would send us forth a people more and more changed by your word, by the power of your spirit. Thank you for the fulfillment of all that Zechariah wrote about when Jesus Christ came and that it will one day be even more perfectly fulfilled when he returns. Help us to live this week in light of that fulfillment. In Jesus' name, amen.